My name is David Blackman. I'm a member of the preaching team here at ASBC. And thanks. It's my privilege to share from God's Word with you this morning. Anybody know this lady? Or know of her? When I was a kid, um, my parents used to subscribe to the National Geographic. That magazine would follow the exploits of interesting people like adventurers and explorers and researchers. And this lady, Dr. Jane Goodall, was one of them. She is an ethologist. I didn't know that word before. That word, it means she studies animal behavior. And Goodall has spent decades studying the behaviour and the social structure, the family life of chimpanzees in East Africa and made some significant discoveries not only about primates but humans as well. In fact, her research led to a redefinition of what humanity is by studying the life of the chimps. And she made other significant discoveries too. And she added, she has added, she's still alive, uh, a huge amount to the world's knowledge about wildlife conservation, habitat preservation, sustainable agriculture, so many things. And even in her late 80s, she still travels the world lecturing and uh, advocating the power of the people, people power. And when asked about her work and her reasons for doing it, she said this on several occasions. What you do makes a difference. And you have to decide what kind of difference you want to make. So hold that thought. That's the message. That's the thought behind what I want to say to you this morning. What kind of difference do we want to make? So last week, Gavin brought to us the first in our series on the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. One key of the Gospel of Matthew is the concept of the Kingdom of Heaven. Other Gospels, they use the term Kingdom of God. It's the same thing. And Gavin took us through the Beatitudes last week, those that, that set of sayings that are in verses 3 to 12 of chapter 5 of Matthew. And he explained to us that they are invitations to us, invitations and opportunities, not so much a set of instructions, but opportunities to grow, opportunities to learn and to serve. And on the surface, Gavin said, they look like, it reads just like a checklist of things that a Christian has to do to get blessed. Well, that is a byproduct of doing that stuff. But really, they're opportunities to participate in the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus is making the kingdom of God accessible to us. He opens a door in each of those areas to each of us. Gavin closed by saying last week, you are close to my heart. That's what the Father says. Jesus is telling us on his behalf, you are close 
to my heart. And so we don't need to take a legalistic view of any of these statements in Matthew 5, 3 to 12. In the Gospels, Jesus is constantly inviting us, inviting us to seek opportunities, to use opportunities to grow as his disciples. And he is looking for ways to show grace to us. He's not looking for opportunities to dump guilt on us. Now this morning uh, we're going to be looking at the next four verses of chapter 5. At first they seem like something of an about face. They tell us what we're like if we're not growing as disciples in any of those areas. Because discipleship is, is about following a master and reflecting the, the life and the teaching of the master. In this case, it's about reflecting Jesus. And without reflecting Jesus, his disciples are no more useful than salt that is tasteless or light that is invisible. So those two things are pretty hard for us to imagine. That means Jesus is making a strong statement. Let's read the passage. Matthew 3, Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Reading from the NIV. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So we're talking about salt and light. Salt is useful to us. It makes food tasty, used correctly. In Jesus' time, it had great value. We read in Leviticus chapter 2 that the Jewish people were to present their grain offerings to God with salt. Apparently the Greeks considered salt to have divine properties. Some scholars say that Roman soldiers were even paid in salt. There's a bit of dispute about that, but I find it interesting that our word salary is de derived from the Latin word for salt. But of course, we know that salt's main function is as a preservative. A preservative helps food to last for a long time. So in Jesus' day and, in, and over the centuries since, people would pack fish or meat, any kind of meat, in salt as soon as possible 
so it wouldn't decay, so it wouldn't go rotten, so it would last and people could take it away with them and eat it later on. So, of course, in the past, with no fridges or freezers, packing meat in salt was the only way to store it. And this is what Jesus has in mind here, I believe. He is saying to us that we, as his disciples, need to act like a preservative. Christians should be working to save this fallen world, this sinful world, from moral decay. We're here to preserve and to build on what is good. And uh, when we look at the world around us, that task is getting more and more difficult, of course, as time goes by, to save the world from moral decay. Now, various other views have been floated as to why Jesus might liken us to salt. Salt is white. It's the colour of purity. It adds flavour to food. We, Christians, add flavour to the world, the flavour of Jesus. We know, too, that salt stings open wounds. So maybe that tells us that Christians are to bring the sting of rebuke to a world that's wounded by sin. We know salt makes us thirsty. Christians are to create a thirst for Jesus. So various interpretations, but most commentators agree that it's the idea of being a preservative that Jesus is talking about here. Christians are to preserve what is good in the world against moral decay. To inhibit the power of sin to destroy the lives of people around us. Of course, this creates opportunities for sharing the gospel. Now, it's hard for us to imagine how salt could taste anything but salty. In its natural form, where it occurs as rock salt or sea salt, we mine rock salt from the earth, we harvest dried salt from the sea. Natural salt like that doesn't lose its flavour. It just can't. Jesus' hearers knew that, of course. However, the refined salt we buy in packets at the supermarket contains ag additives like iodine, anti-caking agents, and goodness knows what else. That kind of salt does lose its flavour gradually. It has a shelf life of about five years. And uh, it goes off slowly especially if it's exposed to moisture or if it's stored in a metal container because then it causes corrosion and introduces contaminants. But Jesus is adding a warning here. It's unthinkable, the concept is unthinkable, that natural salt should lose its flavour. So, he says, it should be unthinkable for Christians to lose their ability their ability to be a positive influence in this world. It is unthinkable for Christians to lose interest in seeking to be witnesses for Jesus in a world that needs him. Of course, we all know it's possible to go cool on the things of, of God. 
it's possible for us to tolerate sin in our lives. Sin contaminates us, like a metal container contaminates salt. Sin renders us ineffective. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, if you are letting things go like that, you are not useful to me. But of course he would rather not have reason to say anything like that to us. And that's why he is offering all those invitations in verses 3 to 12 that we read last week. The Father's words to us are, as Gavin reminded us, you are close to my heart. He wants us to choose to be effective. And he will help us carry out that choice. Jesus moves on to another image. Christians are like light. We are light for people around us, living a holy life before them. And a holy life is one that demonstrates the grace of God and inspires others to seek God. It's a challenge. That's, that's, that's what a holy life should do. So just as it's impossible for salt to lose its saltiness, it's impossible for a town built on the top of a hill to be invisible. It's easier to see. You can, from the whole countryside around, you can see a town like this, and it's built there for a reason, of course. It's in a strategic position. And over the centuries, towns were built on hills as a place of safety. The townspeople can easily see enemies approaching and so they can defend themselves. This one happens to be in Italy, but there are many ancient towns like it across Europe, Middle East and Asia. So Jesus' hearers would have known very well what he was referring to. So in the same way as the people in ancient times did not even give any thought to hiding a town that's built on a hill. So nobody would give any thought to lighting a lamp and then putting a bucket over it or hiding it in some way. Why would you do that? We want the lamp to give light so we can see what we're doing when it's dark. And what's more, we put it up somewhere high, so on a shelf or on a table or we hang it from the ceiling so it will give as much light as possible to the house. Of course, it's not by accident that we put lights in the ceiling. So Jesus is telling us, don't be secret followers, but instead allow the light, his light to shine through us to others. And when we do that, there should be two results. Firstly, that people should see the good things we do that help, that bless others. Secondly, they should respond to those good deeds by giving praise to God, not by praising us, but by praising God. So, salt counteracts the power of decay, light counteracts the power of darkness. So Jesus wants his disciples us, Christians, to be 
salt and light. So as salt to counteract the destructive power of sin and as light to illuminate or make visible the gracious reality of the presence of Christ. He's not presenting this as an option. Being salt and light isn't optional. He doesn't say you can be this or you have the potential to be this. He's saying you are salt and light. You already are. Here's a quote that has been attributed to the Christian writer Francis Chan. Christians are like manure. Spread them out and they help everything grow better. But keep them in one big pile and they stink horribly. Actually, I, I think that quote predates Chan. I'm sure I heard something like that when I was a teenager. But you see the point. As disciples of Jesus, we are to be actively reflecting the presence and the grace of God in our world. Our homes, our places of work, our places of study, wherever we engage in recreation or sport, all of these places. We can do a great deal of good in the community. But if we hide away, then we're of limited use to Jesus. Christians who have no nice taste are of limited use to Jesus. This is a hard word for introverts. I'm an introvert. This is a hard word for me. And that's again why Jesus gives us those invitations in verses 3 to 12. Let's actively take them up. So I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, to listen to Gavin's message from last week, or even if you were. Very good reminder to us. And not surprisingly, the New Testament gives us advice, good advice, as to how to be salt and light. In Colossians 4, 5 and 6, this is what Paul tells us. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So our conversation should be pleasant and tasty. If people react negatively to us, let's ensure that it's not because our manner is irritating. Sure, the gospel message may be irritating to some people, but let's not make our manner the irritating bit. Paul has similar advice in Philippians 2, 14 to 16. Do anything, do everything without grumbling or arguing, he says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. When we're out bush camping, it's impossible to miss the beauty of the stars on a dark night. 
so nice to go to sleep in a swag, just looking at the stars. That's the kind of beauty Jesus encourages to, to cultivate, beauty that is easy to see, as one that whom he says is blameless, pure and without fault. So the Greek word here for shine means bring to light or cause to appear. So without a light source shining in this way, everything is invisible. So when we think of a lighthouse, we're thinking of making things visible in the darkness. People have been building lighthouses for millennia. They show the way to ships who are travelling along a, a rocky coast at night time. They warn of danger. They show the safe way to go. They bring hope to people who are at risk of perishing in the darkness. Similarly, Christians are here to show the way of hope in, using Paul's words, in a war, to a warped and crooked generation. Of course, building a lighthouse in, on the rocky coastline is a dangerous activity. And maintaining a lighthouse in a place like that is a dangerous activity. In verses 11 and 12 of, of this chapter, Matthew 5, Jesus makes it clear that Christians will certainly not have an easy time. Being a Christian, especially in some parts of the world, is dangerous. He says we will be insulted, persecuted and slandered because of our faith in him. But rather than complaining about it, he encourages us to see that as a blessing. Now, of course, we wouldn't deliberately set out to invite insults and persecutions just by being pains in the neck. We wouldn't do that. But we can expect to be noticed just by being Jesus in that place, whatever place that is. Peter gives us some very good advice in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. He asks, who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Here is a saying that some of you would have heard. You have to be winsome, to win some. Winsome is a word we don't use much these days. It's also a, a lady's name, of course, not really in fashion now. 
Here are some meanings of winsome. Winning, engaging, charming, attractive and pleasing. That's why Paul says our conversations should be seasoned with salt. It should be pleasant, tasty. Peter advises, advises us to share our faith with gentleness and respect. This is being winsome. You have to be winsome to win some. And people don't usually come to faith because they lose an argument. So our lives as Christians are to be an ongoing witness to the reality of Christ's presence with us. Jesus longs for us to worship God with pure hearts and to love others as ourselves, to do good without growing weary. In other words, to be like salt, preserving against decay, bringing the flavour of Jesus. And we can be like lights, shining, showing the way to safety and hope. Of course, it's not our light that we're shining. We're only reflecting the light of the world, Jesus himself. Just like the reflector in a lighthouse beams the light way beyond the area immediately around. In reflecting Jesus' light, we will do so in a manner that is pleasant, gentle and respectful. In other words, we follow the example that Jesus has given us in the verses 3 to 12 in the Beatitudes when he gives us invitations. Right? A list is a set of invitations that he gives to his disciples, not instructions. So we too give invitations. We're extending the invitation that, in, that Jesus gave to us to others. So we look for ways to show others how to become close to God's heart. So just as Jesus' way is good news for us, his way is also good news for those around us. Kevin made that point last week. That's the difference we can make. And so to paraphrase Jane Goodall's words, we can decide to make that difference. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we know you because, of you, have you because you have issued invitations to us to put our faith in your Son, Jesus, because of what he has done at the cross. So, Father, let us be faithful in living our lives before those around us and issuing invitations to them to respond to your grace and mercy and love also. Lord, this is not easy for us. And we ask you to fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit to en and his beautiful fruit to enable us to be salt and light in the community in which you have placed us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.